Excellent. Good to know. Well, anyway, we're thankful. Welcome. A lot of new faces. Your pleasure to have you to here today. Um, we are beginning our year um, looking at the church, what it means to be the church. And um, we're in the second leg of a series, so to speak. So we, last year we covered um, a biblical theology of the church, of how the church has evolved, as it were, from Genesis right through to Revelation. And now we're kind of looking at, well, now that we're here, now that in a sense we are in that place where God has established, as it were, the church as we know it, what are those doctrines that we do? What, what are we expected to do when we gather together, whether it be a Sunday, whether it be any day of the week, what do we do? What are we to be expecting? What are we to expect from each other? And what are we to expect God to do amongst us? So today is the second um, in that doctrinal series, and we're going to be looking at the compassion of the church, the compassion of the church. Now, one of the things that we, when we got together and looking at the series, we, we, we kind of thought, well, do not take much from the fact that this has come up sooner rather than later. But it's one of those things that I guess as you look at what we were looking at last week about the fundaments that make up the church, the life of the church, and especially how we saw the church gave. They, lived, they, 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 they were in the apostles' doctrine. They were praying together. They were sharing fellowship together. They shared their resources. And in a sense, that reflection of the compassion was something that naturally flowed out of there. So that's one of the reasons why we're here today looking at compassion and why, and especially that compassion through giving. So I want to kind of walk through the text today. We're going to be looking at 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9. So if you want to get there, we're going to slowly walk through it. So I'm going to take this time to pray and um, set up an intro and then, yeah, dive right in as we, as we feast on God's word. So Lord, we are here. We are your church this morning, dear Lord Father, and we are, again, um, Finding, dear Lord God, new things, dear Lord God, and even old things, dear Father, that will hopefully be revived in our hearts today. And maybe things that we are doing, Lord God, and we can add our amen to and say, Lord, thank you, because again, I, I am doing and I'm believing that this is the right thing to do. So Lord, as we look at this subject of the church's compassion, in particular through the, the, through the expression of giving, Lord God, we pray that, Father, you will strengthen our will and our resolve, dear Lord, Father, to, to act upon your word, wherever we might find ourselves today. That, Lord, the challenge, dear Lord God, that will come, or, Father, Lord God, the amen that we can add will be something we can do in the power of your spirit. So thank you for being present with us today. In Jesus' name, amen. I kind of am um, thinking of a, as a conversation I had with a, a dear brother, and, and kind of um, wanted to kind of title today Compassionate Conservatism, which he expresses an oxymoron, being obviously in the political thing. But today we're going to be talking about real compassionate conservatism, i.e. what conserves our needs and the compassion that does that. But first I kind of want to maybe highlight, as I said, one of those things that we don't want. I guess, I guess a, um, a bit of a disclaimer. So there's, I believe there is a danger that in believing that the fundamental aspects of the faith, as we were looking at some of that, particularly the preached word, the word preached, communion and baptism, be it those being those fundamental things that make us up, those things are, that should be distinct in every church and should also remain whatever age we're living in. You know, we can believe that somehow... These things are all trumped by compassion, or as we call it today, love. In other words, we do all these things, but ultimately, they're governed by compassion and love. And so when we consider, again, things, you know, scriptures like 1 Corinthians 13, the great love passage, we could well walk away thinking that love is the principle in which we live for, as opposed to the method in which the method in which we do things. And I believe that when you really look at 1 Corinthians 13, Paul is arguing that love and compassion 
is a method in the way we do things and not the reason why we do things, i.e. it's all supposed to end up in love. Love or compassion is not um, to become the monumental thing for that reason in which all other Christian principles must then bow to. And again, this is kind of dealing with the image that sometimes people have of the modern church, especially the church in the West, that it becomes this place where you're the people that love or are supposed to love. This becomes especially true as contemporary and cultural norms can distort the biblical understanding of what love is into something insipid, sentimental, and flaky. In other words, we, we can live with that image that people have of the church that we are just insipid. One Bill Hicks, um, if you're ever familiar with the comedian Bill Hicks, was particularly, you know, taunting of the church for this. And, and one particular skit he has, he talks about how he's in a bar and he's, and he's um, cursing Christians and, and all the rest of it. And he comes out and he, the guy comes and confronts him and he says, hey, I'm a Christian. You know, I heard everything that you said and I'm offended. And the guy, you know, looks like he's about to hit him. And then Bill Hicks turns to him and says, well, are you a, are you a Christian? He said, yeah. He said, well, just forgive me. <laughs> And so it's quite true that when we look at that as, a, as, a, as a, a stance of what people think, ultimately we are just to be knockovers, pushovers, just take it on the chin. And then obviously it leads to where we are now in the culture where we're just not taken seriously. But we'll see more about that anyway. So in principle, God's agenda is to conform us, and this is what we really are here for, to the image of his son. And this also is the business of the church. In other words, church can be messy in the sense that love can look very different depending on where we are in that walk, in that conformity to Christ. The truth is that the church needs faith, hope, and love in order to drive it towards this very goal because when it is finally accomplished in glorification neither faith or hope will be necessary and this is the reason why again people get that picture of love being that abiding principle because love remains but like I said these are methods to bring us to a place faith and hope but when obviously we are glorified we no longer need faith and hope as the scripture says because we are already in that state in which we are expecting it is for this reason that love seems to hold any primacy in the Christian church because it will continue into eternity. For now, faith and hope still has a place in driving the believer towards his goal. In other words, right now, faith and hope and love are important methods to drive us towards that goal of glorification with our Lord. So one of the common mistakes in our current era of biblical illiteracy, in other words, people believe they understand the Bible, but they don't, is to sum up the New Testament theology to God is love. First John 4, 8 says this, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. And so we can run away with a scripture like that and say, well, then love is all it's about. And we kind of end up right back at that same place again. Well, I just got to be whatever the current culture thinks is love or what is taken for what really is what they're really talking about being nice people. The belief that spurs this on is that love is the only attribute, therefore, let us make it the be all end all of all our Christian pursuits. In other words, we end up in that sentimentalism. The sad truth is that people and even so called believers are satisfied with the church being a place for charity, but not for truth. We go here for, you know, and again, that's some of the things we have to fight against. That picture that we are here ultimately just to provide people's material needs, emotional needs. But ultimately, you don't go to the church for truth. And again, we want to fight against that idea. Today, we're looking, we're not, today we're not looking at love in that broad sense, but in the area of giving. And love 
the love we have for the gift of God or the gift of Christ and how we need to reflect that in what we give. So this is, again, that narrowing down. So having said that, our need to be compassionate in a positive sense is what we're going to deal with in 1 Corinthians 8 and 9. So if you turn with me there, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, I want to read the first seven verses and then kind of unpack that. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth and generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this is not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urged Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. So what do, you, what do we have here in that first seven verses? Well, Paul wants the Corinthian church to be aligned with the other churches. Other words, so the church is now quite broad in the sense that there are churches in various parts of what we know today as Turkey. In particular, the Macedonian churches, which is again those, those places just north of Greece today, in giving support to the Jerusalem believers who are suffering from famine. So one of the things that, are, that is in the background here is that the Jerusalem church are suffering. Now, lots of other places are suffering because that famine has also hit them as well. But in particular, the Jewish believers are suffering because the Jewish believers, who those who are found to, to, be, to be Christians amongst them, have been ostracized from their Jewish community. In other words, it's harder for them to get relief because other Jews have told them that because you're a Christian, you're dead to me. And so, in other words, their reliance on the, 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 I guess, what is going to become their reliance upon the believers outside of Jerusalem is going to be important to them because they don't have access to those relief packages that probably would have been given to the Jewish community. So Christian unity is being demonstrated cross-culturally by sharing resources with those in need. So this, I believe, is a rather strong witness because, again, remember at this point, the Jewish church is quite sensitive about opening up to the other pagan and um, pagan cultures and allowing them into the covenant because they believe that this is so countercultural to them. They've never, they don't even go in to other, believe, other Gentiles' houses. And so there is that point where there is a demonstration that in their need, as other churches give to them, that there is something that's going to soften their heart towards, oh, wow, imagine if I never had this relief, if I never had these, and it becomes a, po a potent witness, a powerful witness to the fact that we have these brothers who can now support us. In other words, they are, they are closer brothers than even our own blood and they're supporting us so that's the witness that has been given and that's the backdrop in why this has become so important so as the gentile church are uniting with the jewish believers in providing for their needs and that's that's that witness so verse one we note that paul calls this opportunity to give a grace in other words when we think when we see that word grace there it's not something that comes from us but is something that we receive. We receive the grace of God, and that grace overflows into other people's lives. In other words, as I am believing that God is working in me, I want that to now work into other people's life. And this is important. One of the reasons why I believe it's important because, again, as, as we've been looking in our Bible study in Galatians, when we give, we are supposed to be giving from the motivation of what God has done in us. In other words, it's a response to that. 
if we do not do that in response to what God is doing, we are calling what, I guess what people call theologically, stapling on fruits. In other words, I give and, you know, we put our hands in the pocket, we put some money in the offering thing, but it's not really from the motivation of what God has done in my life. I'm not, it's not really an overflow from the fact that I'm saved as opposed to not being saved. And so, therefore, when we're just doing it because it's an action without, quote-unquote, that connection of the faith of I have in God because of the grace he has given to me, then that's what we call stapling on fruit. In other words, fruit should just grow. I don't go to a tree and just say, well, I just want the tree to look fruitful, so let me staple on the fruit. But that's what so many people do. They just staple fruit to their tree and say, look, I'm growing. <laughs> but it's not natural. And so that's a very important term that we need to understand. So when we are talking about the grace, in other words, Paul is encouraging them that they must give from the fact that they have received this grace from God. Give out of what you understand about what God has done for you. So this reminds us that, you know, the grace that which believers receive is supposed to overflow into the life of others. Again, Matthew 18 reminds us of that. I forgive because I am forgiven. The situation, you know, so verse 2, the situation in which this grace is, is to give is not coming from, from out of a superabundance. So remember, the famine during the time of Claudius had meant that many Roman provinces were struggling to find food. And, there were, and these particular Macedonian believers, this is, again, talking about the Philippians or Philippi, they were giving even though they are also struggling to find food. But one of the things that they have is that, that at least they, to some extent, they still have their communities to support them. Assuming, again, that being a Christian within Philippi, in particular, was not a stigma that ostracized you from the community. So people who are struggling are giving to other people who are struggling. And so that gives us another con a broader context of how we give. Do I disqualify myself because I am struggling? Verse 3, Paul now states that these Macedonian believers gave in accordance to what they could spare, but also some gave beyond their means. Again, this is not a call to jeopardize your own situation by helping another, by putting yourself in poverty. That's not what Paul is calling for, but about a God giving, giving some through the grace they give to them in order to give more than they, they could or look like they could. In other words, a situation might be arising that, you know what, I am fasting this week and I'm going to give my grocery budget to somebody else. So that's money that really ought to be spent. But because of my grace and my faith, and I'm going to be saying, well, I'm going to fast. I'm going to now use that, those resources. I want to give it to somebody else. I'm going to, or maybe you say, I'm going to fast my coffee. You know, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to walk past the Costa. I'm going to walk past the Starbucks. And then you gather those resources, and then you give it to somebody. And so that's that superabundance. It's not giving, and so that might be the grace that some people are going, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go without for a little while and give to somebody else. And so that's that superabundance that Paul is talking about. Not giving foolishly, but giving in a way where you're saying, you know what, because of what God is doing in my life, I'm going to do something different. And it also speaks to the trust that they're having in God as well, doesn't it? So unlike the Corinthians, so verse 4, unlike the Corinthians who gave, who, who, who Paul now having, writing, having to write here has to remind to give to the Macedonians, are, who are, he has to remind the Corinthians to give, whereas the Macedonians are begging for the opportunity to give. In other words, because it is by grace and because of the grace, they see the opportunity to give as an opportunity to partake in God's blessings. And so they're begging to give. I don't want to miss this opportunity to give. This should remind us that also that our honor and our pleasure is to take part in Christian ministry. In other words, it's a pleasure that I get to come and sing with the saints today. It's a pleasure that I come and get the opportunity to give. It's a pleasure that I come and get to share in the word of God. All these things are a blessing and not something we endure 
in verse 5, Paul here is surprised at how these believers are able to pick up their, up their theological grounds for giving. In other words, they gave of themselves and then, get, and then gave. In other words, that's the, that's the idea of giving naturally as opposed to unnaturally. In other words, their, their, their giving was, was accomplished by the fact that they gave themselves to God first. That's really solid theological ground to stand on. I am so part of who God is that now God can give everything I am. Everything I am is, is exposed and is available for God. Because they have given themselves to the Lord, the next step of giving off themselves was easy. Our commitment to God should naturally lead to our commitment to each other. Verse 6. Now, Paul, having seen the quick take uptake of the support for the relief fund from the Macedonian church, he now wants Titus to pick up the pace with the offering for the Corinthians. Please note again that Paul doesn't want mechanical giving, but giving as an overflow of grace. In other words, come on, guys, let's pick up the pace. Let's get it done. But again, he's not wanting it to come through, all right, okay, now I just put my hand in my pocket and give whatever is there. He wants them to go back and do exactly as the Macedonians have done and, and rethink what they, where they need to be, think about the grace of God to them, and then give. So in other words, it's not one of those, um, you know, if you've ever been in one of those services where the whole idea is to wrangle money out of people in this particular situation. Do you know what I mean? And then before you know it, it's like the 50-pound queue and the 100-pound queue and all the rest of it. It's not that. It's not that kind of mechanical giving. It's go back and rethink what God has done to you and done for you. So verse 7, as Paul has seen them excel in other forms of Christian life, and this is the tragedy of it all. The Corinthian church was a gifted church. It was a church that was overflowing in the blessings of God. In other words, Paul is saying, I've seen you excel in so many different things. He would like them to now exceed them, excel in giving. And that sometimes is one of the challenges of churches, isn't it? Wherever you go, where you can find that they have so many excellent attributes, but what we naturally find is that there's something they normally fall short on. That's something we should expect. But that, that's not a grounds for like, well, okay, well, I'm going to try, try and find the church that does all the things I like correctly. But the reality is, is that let's try and restore those things that we are short in and let's try and get it up. And that's what Paul is like saying. Is that, Corinthians, you're, you're so good in so many other areas of life. Let's just see that giving match all those other gifts that God has given you. Excel in that as well. And so that's what we live for, to be able to excel in all the expressions that we should be doing as Christian believers. So then let's turn to our next section in um, verses 8 to 15. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And in this matter, I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burden but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. So now Paul moves on and he gives us the example of Christ. In other words, he's laying another theological ground. In other words, why should I give? And again, he doesn't do whatever he goes. He's not going like saying, you know, look, there's a little family in Jerusalem and, you know, they're really struggling, you know, and, you know, they haven't, you know, um, 
Little, you know, little Anna hasn't eaten for seven days and, you know, all the rest of it. We can do that. Many charities do do that. But Paul is not doing that. He's not describing the, the harsh circumstances that people are going up with. He's saying, this is the theological ground in which we must give. Jesus Christ gave himself for us. What are we doing other than trying to be Christ-like? Christ, in his richness, came in order to make us rich. That's the theological ground. In other words, when we start to understand that grace of God, we start to realize that as God has given himself through Jesus Christ, now I have the opportunity to give like he has given. Now, obviously, the scale of what Christ does is not the same, but we get the opportunity to at least follow that pattern of Christ and now give ourselves to him. So that's the, the example that Paul wants to lay down for them to now follow. So verse 9 now says, The incarnation itself is held up as an example of how who, those who are rich, namely Christ, have made themselves poor in order to make others rich. In other words, we benefited from the fact that Christ's richness has been transferred to us. Why don't you do the same with your material things? Verse, not, verse 10. Paul now recalls how this grace to give has started to mature in them, even the very desire. One of the, one of the, one of the, 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 the ironic things is that the Macedonian church cottoned on to the idea of giving this, giving to the relief from the Corinthians. In other words, they were the first persons that initiated the idea of giving. Like, you know, it popped up into their head. Hey, Paul, um, why don't we take up an offering for the Jerusalem church and give that some relief? You're going back to Jerusalem at some point. Yeah, well, let's, let's give some money. Let's support those brothers there because I don't want, to, I don't want those people to struggle. So that all germinated in Corinth. And now Paul is like saying, come on, you, God began this. In other words, they were already making, doing the theological connections and they were already going through that motion. Like, oh yeah, Christ has given us that. Well, maybe we should also do so as an expression. As people think about how can we outwork this Christian, this, this, this gift of grace that we have, and it came to them. And now they were ready to give. But so often, as we find, again, this is the nature of the church, and this is why it's good to look at these things in detail, is that sometimes we start really great things, and then we lose. We trail off, and we lose interest, or we lose momentum, and we need to be reminded, come on, let's get it done. The theological grounds were sound. Let's move forward and get it done. How many of our own good ideas, born from good theology, is also stalled because we somehow awaken to a different mind or just wake up the wrong side of the bed. So verses 11 and 12. So often grand dreams do get completed, do not get completed because somehow we make it happen in a way that, because somehow it can't, we can't make it happen in the way that we dreamed. And this is one of the reasons why we stall. And I guess this is why Paul is putting it there. Sometimes we think of it, the plan that we have to kind of install a ministry into the church and to, to get something done is that we have this fantastic dream and then we can't get it done because, oh man, it's just going to be so lame in comparison to how I envisioned it. And Paul is like saying, no, don't, it doesn't matter, even if it's small. Do it with what you have as opposed to the, the, the imagine of how, how big it can be. It's like I said, start where you are. You know, one of the blessings and one of the things I, I, I love looking to, you know, when I, when I think about this, whole, I mean, you know, numerous examples, but the one I love the most is, is Moses at the, at the burning bush. And Moses is looking at this massive task that he has again. Go to the superpower of the world. Tell him that I want all, all, you to release all the slaves, all the, all the resources he's, he's, he's relying on to make their economy flow. Give them up. And then, how am I going to do this, Lord? I don't even speak well. I've got, what am I going to do? What's the resources you're going to have? And, and the Lord looks at him. He says, what do you have in your hand? And he says, well, I've got my shepherd's rod. And with this rod, I will do all my wonders. I mean, 
you, you see it, whether you look at, you like the chart on Heston, I like, you know, the um, Prince of Egypt. The bottom line is that that's powerful. I mean, the Lord, imagine he only had a stone. He says, with this stone, I will do all my wonders. And that rod becomes a piece within the set piece of, of, of the Exodus. It's the rod that becomes a display of God's power. Just the same way that the cross becomes a display of God's power. What do you have? I have a dying Savior on the cross. And with this, I will do all my wonders. It's that ability that God can use that which we consider to be even despised amongst the culture. And he says, I will use that to your advantage. And so often we think that what looks lame to the world and even to us, Maybe we need to look at it with the eyes of faith. You know? I could easily start going into, you need to look with the eyes of faith with that Prince of Egypt song. So I love that. You don't look with the eyes of man. <laughs> wonderful, wonderful. You know, but there is, there, there is that beauty of looking with the eyes of faith, isn't it? And that's what Paul says. Don't, don't think about, oh, I, I want it to be grander. I want it to be bigger. I want it to give more. He said, give what you have, you know. And so that's a beautiful picture that we need to kind of keep. Verses 13 to 14. Paul here speaks of the fairness here. But not merely that the people who, have, who has the physical resources has everything to lose and nothing to gain. In other words, don't look at it as this point where it's just you giving. In fairness, those in need who are suffering in the faith can share that suffering with those who are not so, who, who, have, who, who have financial things to lose. In other words, Paul is talking about an exchange here. Paul is saying, don't think about it as like, oh, I'm just giving money and I'm giving resources and it's a one-way thing. He says that actually in the vision of fairness, when you share and you partner with these guys, the blessings of their suffering... And again, being part of that Christian faith where suffering is promised is that transference is happening. In other words, you get the blessing of their state, of, of their humbleness, and they share in your resources. In other words, as you're lifting up one version of the, the vision of God wants to lift people out of darkness into light, you're also getting that ability to suffer with Christ. Remember how um, um, Peter and John rejoiced for the opportunity to be when they were beaten by the Sanhedrin for joy. Because in a sense, they are not because they are, you know, ascetics and they just, you know, I like to flagellate myself. No, because they identified that they were suffering for the gospel. They were suffering for the gospel. Like these Jewish believers were suffering because they believed in Christ. And their Jewish community didn't like that. You get to suffer. You get to enjoy in in that. In other words, you're part of this great exchange. It's not just you giving and you not receiving anything back. You receive that unity with them as well. And as you share with that, you get that great blessing that comes with it. That they give to you what you lack. Humbleness. Participation in Christ's suffering. Now verse 15 is interesting. Because Paul now quotes from Exodus 16 about how the manna was provided. And I want to expand on this probably a little bit later. But it's an interesting thing about how um, he now uses the manna as that picture of fairness. That those, if you remember again in the Exodus, that the manna was given and that ultimately when people took the manna, the manna for whether people picked a lot or people picked a little, as he says, those who picked a little and they were full. Those who picked a lot and they were trying to leave a little bit left over found that by the time the evening came, all the manna had spoiled. In other words, God was teaching them something about we need to trust God. It's almost like, as I, as, as I, as I kind of pictured what, he's, what Paul is trying to do here, is about... God literally being like in the, in the Lord's prayer, Lord, give us our daily bread. The emphasis on daily. In other words, I'm trusting you for today, Lord, and as much as it's in my mind to think about tomorrow and the day after, the Lord is like saying, hey, let's just deal with today. And there is something about the fact that God is not anti, let's plan for the next, you know, week, 
month, year, five years, ten years, whatever it might be. But that he believes that those things are only accomplished day by day. So I need to, t- to slow down and look at where I am today. And as I look at where I am today, God is doing it. So that's a principle he's laying there, but I think this will unpack a little bit more as we move forward. So let's now move on to 16 to 24. But thanks be to God who put into the heart of Titus the same earnest care I gave for you. For he not only accepted our appeal, but, but being himself very earnest, he is going to you on, of his own accord. With him we are sending the brother who is famous among all the churches for his preaching of the gospel. And not only that, but he has appointed by the churches to travel with us as we carry out this act of grace that is being ministered by us for the glory of the Lord himself, and to show our goodwill. We take this course so that no one should blame us about the generous gift that is being administered by us. For we aim at what is honorable, not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. And, w- and with them we are sending our brother, whom we have often tested and found earnest in many matters, but who is now more earnest than ever because of his... Because of his great confidence in you. As for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker for your benefit. And as for our brothers, they are messengers of the churches, the glory of Christ. So give proof before the churches of your love and of our boasting about you to these men. So let's have a look at that in a a bit more detail now. So the ministry needs to be done with due care. In other words, loan treasuries are not, are not supported in this text. Let's see why. So verses 16 to 19, if the Lord's work is going to be done, then it will need faithful people who need to initiate it and others who will need to come alongside them in order to make sure it is done well. In other words, they may originate in one person, But other people need, ministries need other people. There is no, you know, one of the things that we see within the context of the Bible is that there's no Rambo ministries. You know, I'm the one person, all the rest of it, you know. Even Jesus Christ Christ himself decides to pack around him 12 disciples and even 72 at the end of the day, the, the, the Lord himself gives by, by demonstration, I choose to do this within ministry of others and under the scrutiny of others. And one of the things we know about Jesus is that when you look at the questions of the disciples, they did scrutinize him. Why are you doing this? Why are you believing this? What do you, you know, at the end of the day, and being able to give answers, the idea that, you know, no one can understand me, no one can do, and, you know, come on, man, we, ha- we have to see those guys for what they are. And we've got to be able to tell them plainly, look, there is no way you can justify what you're doing by yourself. There is no way from Genesis to Revelation that God has ever ordained that if you, if you initiate something, that God, if God has really blessed it, he's going to send people that are going to come around it. He will. I'm witness to that. And if it's not of him, guess what? No one's showing up and no one's going to believe you. But don't think that as so many people do, that's confirmation that my message is so anointed that no one receives it. <laughs> Come on. So no Rambo ministries. So the Lord needs people, brings people to those things, and that's what is being described here. That as the idea of giving and this whole idea of creating a huge offering, a huge gift to come to the Jerusalem church, other people need to get involved because money is involved and potentially, as we, as we can see here, huge sums. For this reason, we do not leave financial, the financial welfare of the church down to one individual, even if that, they are even capable of managing it by themselves. Even when they're like, you know, ah, oh, man, I'm first-rate accountant, I could do all this stuff. Bro, you're still going to need somebody who's going to scrutinize you. Sister, we're still going to need someone who's going to scrutinize you. Come on. How am I going to slow me down? 
Day by day, isn't it? <laughs> we go back to that, isn't it? Day by day. Verses 20 to 22. The purpose of this is that things are done in a way that avoids the possibility of any misdeeds. It would appear that the apostles have moved on since the days of Judas alone holding the purse. John 12, 4-6. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, who was about to betray him, said, Why was this anointing oil sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Why wasn't this anointment oil sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. These apostles have moved on. <laughs> we trusted one man with the money. And we've, that, work, that didn't work out well for him. The church wasn't impoverished, but at the end of the day, sometimes, again, maybe it's, 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 when, it's when people are being sent to support you in your ministry. It's actually a blessing. I don't want you to be that low. I don't want you to be out there by yourself. I don't want you to be with Judas without no counsel, no witness, nobody to test you. And we have that from scriptural reference. Verses 23 to 24. Paul's belief is that all these different brothers come together, um, will come together, and will deeply encourage the Jerusalem church. And so he's not just merely thinking about the fact that um, it's for the support of making sure everything is done right. But when the whole delegation show up in Jerusalem, all these other brothers, there's gonna be, that's going to add to the ministry. Look at, all these, look at all these other people that are standing with us as, as, the, you know, as the Philippian church come and say, brothers, this is the gift that we've given. We've been praying for you guys. Bless the Lord. As the Colossian delegation comes and they got the Colossi delegation comes, here's the gift of God. We've been praying for you guys. We love you. We are, you know, man, bless the Lord. You know, as the Corinthian church delegation comes forward and says, here's the gift that we've... What a witness that would be to the Jerusalem church. As they see not only money come, but the people that have come with it and the prayers that have come with them. And, and again, for the very purpose, because to remind the Jerusalem church, we've been praying for you, brothers and sisters. And they're showing up and giving the gift. What a blessing. Again, remember at a time when traveling wasn't cheap. Do you know what I mean? Traveling wasn't cheap. Let's move on. Time's against us. 2 Corinthians 9, 1 to 5. Let's go and read that. Now, it's superfluous to me to write to you about the ministry for the saints, for I know your readiness of which I boast about to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I am sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter, so that you may be ready, as I said to you, would, as I said you would be. Otherwise, in some, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you are not ready, we would be humiliated to say nothing of you for being so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. This one to five can be summed up in this way. Do not show me up. Do not show yourself up. The Corinthians who have seemed to come up with this plan, and again, this is something, you know, I've been in, the, you know, you've, when you've been around a few places and you, you suddenly realize that there are, there are ministries, there are churches, and there are people that are gifted in coming up with great ideas. But the thing is that you need not great ideas, people, but you also need people that will do things, in other words. When you look at a good business and all the same, same sort of thing, you need a collection of different personalities. Do you know what I mean? You need somebody with a managerial mind to come alongside the entrepreneur and like says, how can we scale this into, a, into something that is workable? And that's one of the things that 
Paul is seeing the gift in the Corinth of coming up with ideas, of coming up with ways to, to kind of minister to other people. But what you find is that the gift of that, that managerial gift of getting things done excels in other ministries. And one of the things that Paul, as he's already urging the Corinthians to hurry up with what they're doing, is that other people have put into plan and put into process their idea. And they're already ahead. And then when they come and they show up at the church and they find that these guys are not ready, well, where's your delegation? Where's the money? Oh, we're not quite ready. We're going to, you know. He says that but these guys had the idea and they're not ready. And there's that potential for discouragement. That as these other churches come and they see that, well, we're following your lead and you're not even ready to do what you're supposed to be doing. Again, that, that ability to, as it were, invest evenly within the context of the church. In other words, you need those people alongside you who will be able to empower those ideas. So often it's because there's a personality who's stuck at the front. And again, going back on that word, maybe he wants to do it on a grander scale. He or she wants to do it on a grander scale and, and feel stuck. The managers can't come in and say, look, we can do it this way. So Paul sees a potential situation for embarrassment for himself, but even more so for them. And he says, let's avoid that. So he's sending somebody ahead to speed up the pace. So that when they come, they are right. And remember, he doesn't want to come out and show, again, remembering, he doesn't want to come and show up there, show up and wring their arms so that they can staple fruit. He wants them to, to be ready with the right theological backing as to why they're giving. So in other words, he wants to allow for the time for that to germinate and for them to do it. And we'll, we'll see a bit more of that in a minute. So let's go to verses um, six to nine. Let's read that. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver, and God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever." So, giving to benefit myself or others. You know, so now's this, now's this issue of this text is key to one of those services I've already described where people are trying to wrangle money out of people's lives. And the strangest thing is that when you look at the context of this text and you look at the context of what other people do it. The whole idea is that they're saying, well, so that you can ultimately get richer. When the context of this is that you will make other people richer. So the whole idea of, of, of God giving you more seed, so people are now being compelled in those alternative services to give in self-interest. Well, all right, okay, look, you know, give, but I'm, I'm standing on scriptures like this where the giver gets more. So do it in self-interest. And so then people go, oh, yeah, yeah, you know what? I'll invest in my God stocks, for want of a better I, I illustration, and let's see if those stocks go up. And so the idea is that the way to get more money is to give it away. And this, however, is counterintuitive to what the passage is actually teaching. Paul is really saying that the best way to get more money is to give it away. No, he's not teaching that. That's mercenary. That's self-interest. This 
is ultimately self-seeking, as I've already said. And when you aim, and when the aim ought to be the needs of others, it would be good to believe that as people get richer, they give more. But in reality, this is not true. What people, what Paul means by giving seed to a sower is about the opportunity to continue to participate in providing for God's people and growing in their righteous obedience. So what Paul is envisioning here is not so much that, oh, people just do this to get richer, but he says that to participate in this blessing of being able to provide for others is that pray that God helps you to continually be generous. In other words, as you give, you find that more resources are coming to you. And as you give, then you give more because you're able to be generous. I mean, this is one of those examples I get. I like this. And again, one of the things you found, especially with, um, let's say, what, 17th century Puritans, one of the things about Puritans in, 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 in the UK and what made them flourish and, what, and then eventually what made America grow was that because they were so invested, again, invested in God, but they were so invested in, in, in normally agricultural businesses and because they were so not invested in their material needs, they kept on reinvesting in their businesses. And their businesses just kept on growing and growing and growing. That's a, sec that's a secret. I mean, when you're not just living to pay shareholders and you can reinvest, businesses grow. And that's exactly what happened with Puritans. Because they, they were so not materially involved, oh, you know, I've got to get the latest horse and cart and, you know, coming from France or whatever. They were able to just continue to invest in their businesses. And it gave them more opportunity to give and give to God and build grander churches and build better churches. And did it. So often what people think is the wealth stolen from other people is actually the wealth of people growing because they're frugal in their business. So it's one of those things that, again, it's one of those little things in history that you need to realize is that that's, again, something that could be happening in the backdrop of our own lives, is that as we are less materially kind of focused on things, we have the ability to be reinvested in our business because of the principle here. And our businesses grow and our wealth grows on the basis that we're constantly thinking about how we can make it better and better for others. It's that principle of reinvestment. Verse 7. Sorry. So, shouldn't it be something we do... So, again, what Paul is reminding them here is that, that giving shouldn't be something we do spontaneously. Again, we're all familiar with this, isn't it? The offering baskets come round, and then we're, we're going, oh, right, let me see, and we pull out a bit of change, and then we put it in. Paul, Paul is saying, look, probably not the best way to give. That we ought to be, but our giving ought to be fought through. In other words, it's something that we plan to do. As opposed to something that we just kind of go, all right, okay, what can I spare? Like, again, giving to maybe somebody on the road. Any spare change. And it says that, that the level of giving we're talking about here needs to be more fought through. And verse 8 and 9, giving should also be a reflection of our faith. God's ability to provide for us as we make ourselves available to his work. And that's why I think the bargain is, what I just, as I just described about the Puritan, is that we're making that bargain with what we can live with. In other words, as I'm thinking about what I'm giving, I'm thinking about maybe I need to sacrifice more of my entertainment budget. Maybe I need to, again, if we're fasting, maybe I want to give that money. And, and it's, again, it's thinking those things through. So that as we do it, we do it with a consciousness of like, Lord, I'm giving it. And I fought it through. I can give this. I can give it in faith. But I can give it because I thought that this is what I can give. So let's go to 10 to 15. Hopefully land this plane. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. 
for, this ministry, for the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgiving to God. By their approval of, their, of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. Why they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. This is the word of God. So ultimately, this all lands with giving leads to worship. Giving leads to worship and, and provides a platform for, for worship. As already expressed in verse 6, we need to understand how Paul unpacks this idea here further by making it clear that the needs of the saints are taken care of, when the needs of the saints are taken care of, will lead to more people praising God for this provision. So in other words, as people come to church, knowing that, Man, you know, a brother, sister has blessed me with food this week. That's our weight of my mind. It gives them that opportunity to give thanks for that opportunity that has been given to them. In other words, I can worship God with a full belly. It's that simple. That, that giving amongst us and the fact that my needs are met gives me that freedom to be able to come. Lord, I've got even more stuff to worship you for. I've been, my, my needs are taken care of and then... Then the glory of that is that we can be part of that and our worship of being able to supply those needs and be able to see those brothers and sisters alongside us, seeing that they're content, seeing that their needs have met, make us want to worship God. Thank you, God, for the fact that I've been able to do this. And in a sense, it's that, that, it's that continual picture of contentment between us that as I'm giving and meeting other people's needs, I'm seeing that. I mean... I guess one of the ways I can, I can supply that is, again, I mean, we just came from Christmas, isn't it? I mean, I have, I have little children. And I was, I was, as I was describing at work to somebody my situation of how actually I enjoy Christmas more than when I was a kid. Because I, I, when I see my kids' expressions when I give them a gift that they've, I know that they've wanted... It's the strangest thing. I actually enjoy it more than when I was a kid than when I was getting a present. The joy that I see on their face when they open it and then I'm feeling, because I'm, I'm sometimes, like I said, all from September and October, I'm anticipating that expression and I'm excited to see what they will do. And so I can genuinely say that I've, I've come to the point where I've enjoyed Christmas more as a giver than a receiver. And that's a, that is a God-honest truth statement. And that's what I think has been expressed here. Is that the, that the worship that comes out of it is that we're enjoying it all the more. Because we are participating in that aspect of, of worship. We're facilitating that as we see people's needs. We see the smile on their faces as they come into church. That need has been met. The saints' prayers will connect with God as they thank the Lord for his grace to them through you. As we give, we can be beautiful to think. It can be beautiful to think that the role I have had in contributing to other believers' worship. That's the blessing. So how do we take this away and make this into something? Doable actions. Well, this is... One, I want to say that this is the most extensive teaching in Christian, Christian giving in the New Testament. And I would also argue even in the Old Testament. In other words, we have two continuous chapters about what it means to give. And so if there's a place in which we can come and say, look, let's, let's commit ourselves doctrinally to what we ought to do as a church, I think we're in safe grounds in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. No other place do we get continuous teaching on this, on this level. But please note that Paul makes no mention here of tithing. I think this is important. Because again, I think the danger here, and this is, I haven't written this, but this is something that I think the danger here is that tithing has the potential of being stapling on fruit. 
you know. And so that's why I think it's important, because of the theological grounds that Paul lays here, it's almost like saying this is better than tithing. Though the principle of God's people giving is not annulled, it would be a mistake to see it maintained through the tithing system. In other words, well then other people, so what people then do is they tend to bypass this and they say, well, look, let's just go to the tithing system because that's easy. I just want to encourage my members to give 10%. One of the fundamental transformations in the New Testament era is how the temple has moved from the inanimate tent and then the building to the living temple of Christ and his people. Why is this important? Well, tithing in the Old Testament was very much linked to the temple system. Now, I know that people will bring up Abraham and giving to Melchizedek as one of those ways that I've, I've been in those churches long enough to say, oh, well, well, you know, but really it was established through Melchizedek. And so therefore, in a sense, we can see outside of the Jewish system. But the reality was, is that, again, Paul doesn't make that connection here to Melchizedek. That's important. Paul makes many connections to Abraham, but he doesn't make tithing. He makes the connection of Christ's priesthood to Melchizedek, but he never makes the principle of tithing. And here he's speaking extensively on tithing, and he doesn't make that connection to Melchizedek or Abraham. So that's important. Very important. So, with the, with, with, with the overhaul of the temple system of us now being the temple of God alongside with Christ, then it would be absurd to then think that now that we are all the people of God, that we now all owe a tithe to each other. Because we are all now genuinely the priests of God. We are now all genuinely the temple. In that sense, we all owe to one another. And the weirdest thing is that as you actually look at 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, that's exactly the principle that's been established, is that we do actually give to one another. Now all of us have access to the resources that would be available to the church. So I think that principle has been set up because the tithing system has been overhauled with us being now the temple of God. All of us now become illegible to participate in that. Those who should be considered. Well, the three Ps, isn't it? The poor, the pioneers, and the pastors. The poor will need access to the resources that we have. The pioneers or the missionaries will need access. Again, they sacrifice time in order to do that, to do their work. The pastors, the sacrifice of time to do their work, which they can't earn elsewhere because of the time they have to be here to be doing the things of God. So these are all parts of the ministry that we want to make sure have been met. Paul is teaching us to think about how and what we are going to give, but also what we need to live on. And again, going back to um, that, descript, that picture of the manor, the reference of God's provision for the manor certainly seems to allude to our desire to hoard in order to secure our future as opposed to trusting in God. And I think, again, that, going back to that picture of the manor, there is that point where I think there's a challenge for us today of saying, well, look, you know, maybe I'm saving up for something I don't really need. Maybe I've got a nest egg that's there, but it's not really about my retirement. It's really about something I want for myself. And that picture of the manner is almost that picture of saying, will you trust God day by day? As opposed to uh, this picture of me taking care of myself. What would that look like in your life? What challenge might you find there? One note needs to be added here that I think, again, is important, that this is not communist in its conception. The idea that wealth or capital remains the property of all as opposed to the individual, that's the, that's the challenge, I think. We are have, we have being encouraged to give because it does belong to us. 
as part of the seed he has placed in our hands. There is no mention here that believers ought to give their possessions because it doesn't belong to them. It would be hard to give compassionately if it was not ours to give in the first place. Compassionate giving hardly speaks to my generosity if I'm giving what doesn't belong to me. So I'm giving that which God has truly given to me. And now the spotlight is on us as how will I trust God with that which is entrusted to me? What does that faith look like? What is God providing us with? I'll leave that with us all. Let's pray. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.